0: Chapter 2, there are Bibles in the back and we'll show verses on the screen as well. The letter of 1 Corinthians, we're in chapter 2 now. Continuing our little mini-series that we're calling Being a Gospel-Centered Community or a Community of People Centered Around Jesus Christ. Let me pray for us and then Jossi will read our passage. Father, thanks for the privilege of gathering. And the privilege of opening your inspired, inerrant word. Spirit of God, now open the eyes of our hearts, we pray. Help us to understand and apply your word. Apply it to our hearts and our minds that we would leave here affected. That we'd leave here boasting in the glory of Jesus Christ. We pray as well for The Richards family, we pray for Jeff as he has an MRI on Tuesday. We ask you, Father, to have mercy. We ask you for a good result. We ask you that there would be no growth, no progress, that you'd continue to preserve and protect Jeff's health and grant healing. We ask you, we glorify you this way, bringing you great requests. Grant peace to Jeff and Jane's hearts. Until Tuesday afternoon, peace to the entire family, we pray. We thank you for them. In Jesus' name, amen. And I, when I came to you, brothers, did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom, for I decided to know nothing, more, nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. And I was with you in weakness and in fear and much trembling. And my speech and my message were not in plausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the spirit and of power, so that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, Jossie, so much. Author Mark Manson has, I believe, coined a phrase... It's interesting that he calls the attention economy. The attention economy. Basically, now in our society, what is almost like a commodity is our attention. What is gaining your attention? What is capturing your interest? Will you click on that link or not, or that advertisement or not? He, he says how there are all kinds of innovation, quote, geared toward capturing and harvesting our attention, all kinds of innovative things trying to capture and harvest our attention all day, every day, not just television and radio, but All forms of social media, this blog and that blog, this Twitter feed and that Twitter feed, this website, that website, this latest news story, that latest Facebook post. Can you relate? Countless things all day, every day, vying for your attention, competing for our interests. And so I ask you, how can the church of Jesus Christ possibly compete with all that? How will we gain attention in this attention economy, our our ministry to each other and those outside these walls? It can seem, in comparison, so weak, (laughs) maybe foolish. I mean, maybe if we had a, I don't know, a fancier website, maybe if we had a more comprehensive social media strategy, maybe if we had a more impressive speaker today, maybe that would help. (laughs) What's really going to, quote-unquote, work today? What's going to be effective today? It's a ministry question. How can we do effective ministry in this attention-driven, interest-grabbing day and age? Before we answer that, make it more personal. What's going to, quote-unquote, work In your small group, when you go to your home group, what's going to be effective in ministry to each other then with so many other things vying for your attention? What's going to be effective when you try to help a friend who is struggling later this afternoon? What possibly could you offer them with so much trying to capture their interests? What are you going to use to Care for your child or your teenager or teenagers to care for your parents? What possibly could you offer them? Well, in this passage, God provides us with his ministry paradigm. His ministry paradigm. Here we see the Apostle Paul providing an inspired description of his ministry in a city called Corinth. And he's accenting especially his preaching. I acknowledge that. He is accenting his preaching there in Corinth. But through the lens of his preaching, friends, we are provided with a a compelling ministry paradigm for you and me. A compelling ministry paradigm for Grace Church. I would sum up that paradigm like this. Very simply, that all of our ministry must explicitly center on the good news of Jesus Christ. And I want to see, you, see with you two reasons why. Two reasons why all of the ministry of Grace Church, all of the ministry to each other, all the ministry we do outside these walls, it must, friends, explicitly, intentionally center on the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ. Here's reason number one. Christ-centered ministry, Christ-centered ministry defines God's priority for us. Christ-centered ministry in this paradigm defines God's very priority priority for us. You see, the Corinthian church, they had their own kind of attention economy going on. The love of philosophy and impressive oratory had captured their attention. It was vying for their interest. That seemed more wise. That seemed more powerful. And so the Apostle Paul is holding up three things in stark contrast to the other things that have captured their attention. Three things. Last week we saw him mention the weakness and foolishness of the cross of Christ. With weakness and foolishness in quotations. And we saw the weakness and foolishness of ourselves, of believers in Jesus Christ. That was also last week. And now the third part of his argument, the apparent weakness of his own ministry. Look at verse 1. And I, when I came to you, brothers, I did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or apparent wisdom, the kind that you like. I was not trying to impress you with my oratory or the latest philosophical fad. I simply proclaimed, notice, the testimony of God. Of God. Here's my priority, God's priority, the testimony of God. But what is that? Well, in verse 2, He tells us. Notice how verse 2 begins. begins for, so let me explain. For I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. Many things happening in your attention economy in Corinth, many things trying to capture your attention, Corinthians. I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. Now, I want to add a little explanatory note here as we're talking a lot about the cross of Christ, singing about the cross of Christ. The apostle here is not playing sort of theological Jenga. Have you ever played Jenga before where you you have a stack of little pieces of wood and you make a thing like this, a little pile, you know, and then you try to see how many pieces of wood you can pull out before the whole thing comes crashing down. Well, you can't do that with the gospel. It includes Jesus' virgin birth, His perfect life, His triumphant resurrection, think we could add his ascension back to heaven where he currently reigns and from where he will return in addition to his sacrificial death. So the apostle is not negating all of those other elements. You cannot pull one of those out. If you do, it all comes crashing down. He is in effect he is in effect summarizing this gospel with that phrase Jesus Christ and Him crucified. But I do think, I do think He's also identifying the heart of this good news. Jesus' substitutionary sacrifice where where the God-man hung as a substitute, hung in our place until the full fury of the holy and justified and good wrath of God was poured out on the sins of all who believe. I say good because a holy God must judge sin. He must judge what is wrong. That is good. And so the apostle says, I decided, I determined, I resolved to know nothing among you Corinthians except Jesus Christ and him crucified. Now we might think here, I realized we could think that seems awfully narrow. That seems awfully limiting. I mean, he was there in Corinth a year and a half. There are so many other things to learn in the Christian life. Let me speak to that briefly. I want you to imagine a a prism. Let's say a prism of glass. And what happens with a prism, as I understand it is, when, when light strikes it, a prism will break the light into its different wavelengths. It refracts the light into different wavelengths. So you see different colors. You see kind of a rainbow effect. Red, orange, yellow, green, blue, indigo, violet. It's a prism through which you see the various aspects of the light. The gospel, this good news, is a prism to see the glory of God and the attributes of God, the person of Jesus Christ, and who we are before God. Let me explain. It's a prism to see God Himself. This gospel is You see God himself there as loving creator. You see him as sovereign king. You see him as holy judge. You see him as merciful father. You see him as gracious savior all through this gospel. You see Jesus in his glory. The God man in his glory. His, what's called his hypostatic union. That just means two natures, one person. Two natures, one person. Two natures without confusion, without division, without separation. In the one person named Jesus. You see that through this prism. And you see yourself rightly through this prism. That we are created beings. That we are valued image bearers of the living God. But we are a fallen sinful race in desperate need of a rescue. So when the apostle says, I decided, I resolved to know nothing but Jesus Christ and Him crucified, he's not saying, I didn't teach anything else. He's not saying, I emptied my mind of all other knowledge. So what is he saying? I think Gordon Fee puts it well. Where he says, he had the gospel with its crucified messiah as his singular focus and passion. That's what he's saying in verse 2. He's saying he had this good news with his crucified Messiah, this prism as his singular focus and passion. Friends, that's our paradigm. This good news that we were just singing about, our singular focus and, and our greatest Passion—that's God's priority for all Christian ministry. The problem in Corinth was, God's priority was no longer their priority. Other things had captured their attention. Other things were harvesting their interest. Other things, other things, seemed more impressive. Other things seemed more, more effective. They have become distracted from this priority. And friends, we get distracted very easily ourselves. In C.S. Lewis's book, The Screwtape Letters, the older demon named Screwtape is giving the younger demon named Wormwood a strategy for distracting Christians. He says, quote, Work, work on their horror of the same old thing. that insightful you want to distract christians hear what you do work on their horror of the same old thing the horror of the same old thing he says is one of the most valuable passions we've produced in the human hearts friends the horror of the same old thing in the church means we're drifting from the old old story that's what the corinthians were doing and that can be our temptation. I think that's why this passage is so important. Friends, there are numerous well-intended Christian conferences that want to tell you how how you can make ministry work better, how you can do it more effectively, how how you can see greater results. And we love that as Americans, don't we? We love to measure results. We like to make graphs. <laughs> we're, we're pragmatic people We're want to get things done. We want to know what really, quote unquote, works. And that's not wrong, necessarily, but the, the craving for what works, it is like a, a flashlight shining in our eyes. Have you ever done that before? It's not really a good idea. (laughs) You take a flashlight, you shine it in your eyes. I did this with my phone recently. I had it turned the wrong way and turned on the flashlight little thing and it shines right in my eyes. And when you shine a flashlight right in your eyes, you're blinded to everything else. In that moment, you can't see everything else around you. You can't see what you might say really matters, And that's what happens in our craving for what will quote-unquote work and produce results and measure success. We're blinded from what really matters in Christian ministry according to God. Having this singular focus and passion, it's really a question of, isn't it? What are we hoping in? And what what do you think will really work in your life? What do you think will really make a difference? What do you think you really need? Where are you, friends? Where are you locating your confidence for the Christian life and for Christian ministry? It is easily to, easy to get distracted or blinded by the flashlight of many other things. Just think a couple examples. Think of, our, think of our parenting. In ministry to our children, our teenagers, it is easy to get techniki, to invent a word. techniquey, <laughs> To depend on technique alone. This rule is vital to effect, effective parenting. This particular Practice this exact discipline technique, this exact instruction technique. You must do family worship just like this, and that will do the trick. I remember being particularly convicted by the Holy Spirit, how I was relying on my control, as it were, more than on the gospel I ask you parents, what's more important for you in your parenting, your technique or the transforming power of Christ? I'm not denying your role. I'm just asking you, what are you relying on? Where's your confidence? Or think about this priority in our small groups. In our small group fellowship, when we gather, it can be, it can be easy to accent good advice over good news. Ever find that? Someone shares something. I'm struggling this way, and we might quickly. check. Okay, thank you, Matthew. This is when the sound team, our underappreciated sound team gets some credit. We don't know what happened to the power in the building, but something happened. Think about our small groups. We can accent good advice over good news. Someone shares something and the conversation can quickly become, well, have you tried this brand of detergent? You know, have, you, have, you, have you tried my particular diet? Have you have you gone to my chiropractor? Have you tried this essential oil? And those, those are all fine things. I am not putting any of them down. But the priority, friends, is ministering good news more than our good advice. Because then, then you provide hope and help in the only place they can find it, ultimately Jesus Christ. You see what I'm saying? It's easy to get distracted from this priority in our ministry paradigm, and our ministry, our ministry needs to look like, needs to look like what's described in the book, *The English Patient*. I've not read the book; I've read about the book. You know how I do books. It describes two map makers. One is in a burning plane crash. He survives. He crashes in the desert among desert tribes. He is lost at first. He is disoriented at first. But as a map maker, his his global knowledge just needed to locate itself. And so he says the following, I knew their place before I crashed among them. All I needed was the name of a small ridge. And then a map slid into place. That's how you can think about ministry. You just need to locate yourself in that situation. You just need to ask good questions to ascertain what's really going on, and then you need a map sliding into place the map of the good news Jesus' is life, death, resurrection, and then you're providing real help and real hope to that person. This is, friends, God's priority. We resolve, we resolve to know nothing more. Than Jesus Christ and Him crucified. He is our singular passion and focus. That's the first reason why our ministry must be explicitly centered on this good news. Here's reason number two. Reason number two, let's put it like this. Oh, you know what? We don't have a projector, do we? Reason number two, Christ-centered ministry brings God's power to us. Reason number one, Christ-centered ministry defines God's priority... Reason number two, Christ centered ministry brings God's power. Priority, now power. Look or listen to verse 3. Verse 3. And I, I was with you, he says, in weakness and in fear and much trembling. Here's how he describes his ministry in Corinth I came to you in weakness, in frailty, much trembling. And and fear. We don't know exactly what the weakness was. It might have been some physical condition. You can read about his thorn in the flesh in 2 Corinthians. It might have been that his appearance was not impressive to them. There's an interesting 2nd century document that describes Paul as, quote, a man of small stature with a bald head, crooked legs, and a hooked nose. We don't know if he really looked like that or not, but it's not a flattering uh, description of Paul. We don't know his exact weakness here, but he felt weak. And notice, he came, he came with fear and much trembling. You can read in Acts chapter 18 about the opposition he experienced in Corinth and the fact that the Lord Jesus had to appear to him in a vision to keep him in the city and to keep preaching. That might be the fear and trembling he's talking about regardless he felt weakness. He felt fear. He was trembling. And I find that so encouraging. Because I can relate to that. Can't you? do you relate to weakness in ministry? Fear? Trembling? I mean, just think about parental ministry. Parents, don't you ever feel weak? And parenting will humble you in God's good design. Or when you're ministering to a friend and you know you need to mention something that they're not really going to want to hear, but you need to mention something for their consideration that might be helpful to them, be a loving thing to do, but you feel weak inside, don't you? I don't want to bring this up. It's so uncomfortable. Or an evangelism, an outreach, who doesn't feel weak? Who doesn't have some trembling? I was on Friday after a run with some friends, driving in a car with one particular friend. He asked me this question, what are you going to speak on on Sunday? Great opportunity, right? I said, uh, mm, uh, 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 well, um, yeah, the Apostle Paul is going to talk about what he focused on, and that was how Jesus died for our sins. And then I quickly changed the conversation topic. This so weak tap, fear tap, trembling, can you relate? I mean, who doesn't feel some weakness? And here's the point. Through our weakness, the apostle is going to say, God displays His power with this message. Look at verse 4. He says, And my speech and my message were not in plausible words of wisdom. I was not seeking to impress you by my oratory. Instead, I spoke, notice this message came, notice, in demonstration of the Spirit and of power and spirit and power are used rather synonymously synonymously there saying the spirit's power was the the proof, the, the demonstration this is God's message to you I just used plain words to tell the old, old story and that brought a demonstration of the spirit's power You should ask, what was that demonstration? Well, I think he tells us in the next verse. Verse 5. So that, so here's purpose now, so that your faith, Corinthians, might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. In other words, the demonstration of the Spirit's power seems to be their faith in Christ. They became believers in Jesus through this message, through these simple words of the old, old story. God acted upon them. Remember, God called them, we saw last week. God called them. He brought them to himself. He brought them out of death into life that they might believe. That's the demonstration of the Spirit's power. Same in your life. If you are a Christian, he acted upon you and you So the Spirit's power demonstrated was their very existence as Christians. Now it's interesting here. Here's the the first mention of the Holy Spirit in this letter. And we're going to see soon how aspects of the Spirit's work were pretty confused in Corinth. They got things pretty wrong And so what God is going to do in this letter, we're not going to see all of this, but I wanted to forecast some of it for you. What God's going to do in this letter is take their narrow definition of the Spirit's power and expand it hugely. He's going to say in this same chapter, the Spirit's power reveals the gospel to you. That's next week. He's going to say in chapter 4, the Spirit's power enables ministry out of weakness. He's going to say in chapter 5, the Spirit's power produces holiness in our lives. He's going to say in chapters 12 through 14, the Spirit's power empowers love and service with spiritual gifts. He's going to say in chapter 15, the Spirit's power brings the resurrection of our bodies when Christ returns. So the Spirit produces your faith and transforms the entirety of your life from beginning to end through this Gospel. Can you see now, friends, why in this paradigm our ministry must explicitly center on this good news? It is God's priority here and it brings God's power. You're proof positive of that if you're a Christian. So I want to think with you about a few areas of ministry. I want to to apply this with you. I want to think about a few laboratories in our church in which to apply this priority and this power. Think about first the area of trials and ministering to each other through suffering. So I think we do that well, but it's, it's not easy. But when the cross of Christ interprets our trials, something potentially life-transforming happens. Because then we realize that God has entered our suffering world and suffered Himself. Now that doesn't answer every question about suffering And you must share that in appropriate ways, at appropriate times, that never minimizes suffering. But this gospel can powerfully assure the suffering, that God understands suffering, that He can personally relate to suffering, and He cares about their suffering. Friends, rely on this priority and power for that kind of ministry. Rely on this priority and power for what Joshua mentioned, sanctification, growing in Christ's likeness. Think of the hymn, Rock of Ages. It has this line. He breaks the power of canceled sin. He sets the prisoner free. That is so hope-giving if you're ministering to someone related to sanctification, Because of Jesus Christ and Him crucified, we are dealing with canceled sin in sanctification. He breaks the power of canceled sin. Doesn't that give you hope when you realize, I am struggling with this sin, but it's canceled sin. Oh, if you mention that to someone, if you minister that to someone in their small group, your small group, it will bring hope. It will bring faith for change, friends. You'll be such a blessing to them. Think about this power and priority. Related to marriages. The cross of Christ empowers husbands and wives to resist bitterness and forgive as God in Christ has forgiven them. And it reminds husbands and wives that their marriage is about something bigger than themselves and bigger than their perceived needs. Their marriage is about being a living illustration of Jesus and his bride, the church. When you help a marriage, when you help a married couple see the cross of Christ looming large over their marriage, it is potentially transforming. Or, think again about this power and priority in parenting. In parenting. The ultimate goal in parenting is not mere outward morality. Parents, are you aware of that? It's not mere outward morality. Donald Gray Barnhouse, he once speculated that if Satan, if Satan took over Philadelphia, his city, if Satan took over Philadelphia, he said, all the bars would be closed, pornography banished, pristine streets would be filled with people who smiled at each other, And children would say, yes, sir, and no, ma'am. That kind of sounds nice, right? Children would say, yes, sir, and no, ma'am all the time. And he says, churches will be full every Sunday where Christ is not preached. See what he's saying? The gospel is not about mere outward morality. Satan would love that. The goal of the gospel is to transform our souls. And that's the goal in parenting. To see God transform souls by the ministry of this good news. It's our power and priority in parenting. Think about our fellowship, friends. Our fellowship together is not defined by age, season of life, level of income race, cultural background, political allegiance. Our fellowship is defined by Jesus Christ and Him crucified, and that, that is transforming content for our fellowship. Martin Luther, the great reformer, wrote in his introduction to the book of Galatians, he said, quote, listen to this, Most necessary it is, most necessary that we should know the gospel well, teach it to others, and beat it into their heads continually, as only Luther could say. Now, that would be a great agenda for every home group meeting and every Bible study. Know the gospel well, teach it to each other, and graciously, lovingly, beat it into our heads continually, friends. That is transforming fellowship. Point a friend, point a spouse, point a child, point a teenager. Point a fellow member of this church to the good news today. You'll be a blessing to them. Or lastly, this is our power and priority for our mission, for our outward mission with this gospel. In a blog post, Pastor David Prince tells of being suddenly approached by a stranger, or someone he thought was a stranger, and the guy said to... Mr. Prince, he said, you don't remember me. I went to your church 14 years ago. You preached the gospel every week, and so did the small group leaders. I love that. You preached the gospel every week, so did the small group leaders. To be honest, he said, I did not want to hear it and stopped attending. I thought I wanted something more practical, something that would help with my daily life. I found what I was looking for, he said. I was getting my ears tickled elsewhere, but I could not shake the gospel you preached. And four years ago, he says, I trusted Christ. And now I'm in a gospel preaching church where I now live. And I just wanted you to know, thank you. Don't ever stop. Don't ever stop preaching the gospel. Friends, for our outward mission, as you relate to your neighbors, your friends, your co-workers, let me echo the same advice. Don't ever stop. Don't ever stop preaching this priority and this power for it is the transforming testimony of God. Do you see now, do you see now with this attention economy around us, with so many other things vying for our attention, so many other things, competing for our interest, wanting our clicks on the mouse. Can you see how one thing, one message, one good news must be our singular focus and passion? Friends, can you see how all of our ministry in Grace Church and through Grace Church, it must explicitly center on this good news? So let us do let us do what verse 2 describes. Here's the application. Here's the takeaway. Let us do what verse 2 describes. Let us decide. Let us determine. Let us resolve to know nothing more than Jesus Christ and Him crucified. Let us know nothing among each other except that good news. Let us know nothing more than Jesus Christ and Him crucified outside these walls. Let us continue to glory only in Christ, crucified, resurrected, and reigning. Amen? To help us do that, we're going to take the Lord's Supper together. So with the music team please come.